Well, good morning. Good to be back here again. For my benefit, how many of you were not here last night for that portion? A number of you. How many of you are not here right now? <laughs> and how many would not raise your hand no matter what question I ask? <laughs> so, that's just checking. Well, <clears throat> covered a lot last night. It was kind of a relevance talk. Why does this even matter? Why are we discussing these topics? And I have two talks this morning. The first one is going to be very much laser focused on the whole creation evolution controversy and it's one of the most fascinating uh, talks you probably hear on it because of what the content of what's being presented and then visually too it's just kind of cool i'll explain that in a second the second talk after the break if you like controversy it came to the right place because we're going to talk about something that people have different opinions on and i'll explain that a lot 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 more when i get there but it's the whole creation and six-day thing, so we'll get to there right after the break. And uh, I have a promo I showed last night. For those of you who are here, I showed a promo for our Grand Canyon tours. It fits in very well with the second talk, but the second talk is already long enough. I'll just throw it in right away. So before I get to this talk, I will show you a little bit about the Grand Canyon tours that we do. And I mentioned the Grand Canyon tours are not to go there to look at a big hole in the ground. It's to go and to see further evidence of the authority of God's Word. Everything that I talk about gets back to the authority of God's Word that can be trusted from cover to cover. Otherwise, it's just kind of trivia and might be entertaining, but it's got to fit in with why do we believe the Bible. And the Bible does talk about a worldwide flood, and the Grand Canyon is one of the best spots on the planet to be able to see that. I think God did that on purpose in, in the country that he's blessed so much. It's so easy. There are other places you can see evidence. It's just a lot harder to get to some of those other canyon things, but Grand Canyon is so easy to get to. So we take people there to say, guess what? That silly flood story is not silly. It actually happened, and here are the evidences, and you could see it for yourself. I don't give all this highly technical data that you're, I don't, don't quite understand that, but it sounds impressive. No, we show you things that everyone can understand, and you get so fired up. You don't come home and debate people about the flood. You come home and you share the gospel with them, knowing if they bring up something like the flood or anything else, you know answers exist. It'll fire up so much. So here's the promo for our Grand Canyon trips. They're basically four-day trips, a Thursday through a Sunday. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures. Come and see the real thing. Jay Sigurd here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis 6 through 8. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here. We want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that, to a point where you're thinking, please, please ask me. Just learning about the creation theory and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. A chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and uh, His beautiful world that He created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's Word that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. 
The problem isn't the evidence, because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. You have to see it in person. It is an amazing place to visit, and we want to go on this journey with you, so get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at the Starting Point Project. Com. The rock is pretty stable. It doesn't fall over too often. If it does, we just kind of put it back up there again. <laughs> uh, anyway, awesome, awesome tour. If you're interested, we've got brochures and things back there. We've got five trips this summer from the end of June through October. If you're interested, you can get more information from our website or the brochures. Again, it's all about the authority of God's word. People come come away from those trips so fired up in their faith. We had one, a number of them, but one of them, a guy came on the trip, he was an atheist. He's not an atheist anymore because of just the power of seeing that and then tying it into scripture. It's pretty cool. So I got to jump into the reason why you guys came. We're going to be talking about evolution, probable or problematic. You know, Is it pretty likely or are there huge issues with this idea of evolution? And for those of you weren't here, I'll go over my background really quickly again. Um, basically, I was raised in a Christian home, and then I went to a Christian university to study engineering, John Brown University in Arkansas. Got a degree there. Then I also wanted a degree in physics, so I went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater from Wisconsin. So I went to a state university there to get a degree in physics. But that was a big change, going from the Christian college to the state university. My professors at the state university were telling me, literally telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And I realized I know what I believe, but I don't know why. I could not defend the Christian worldview. I was raised to believe all of it, and I did. I had no problem with it. I just couldn't really defend it. Now here I'm having my PhD, you know, physics professors and others telling me I'm wrong. I assume that they had a lot of evidence for what they believed, but I realized for the first time in my entire life, yes, I do know what I believe. I don't know why. I found out later my professors had zero evidence for what they believed. Seriously, it's all another story I don't have time to go into right now, but I asked them point blank, very graciously, not one example. They didn't give me one example of a line of evidence, any specifics. They kept shuffling me off to someone else. Interesting story from uh, another talk, but anyway, that's a little bit of my, my background. Also, I was called into full-time ministry. I've been speaking for 38 years. I did about 20 years just on the side. Speak, and then I felt called into full-time ministry about 17 years ago, founded the Starting Point Project. I was also invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. This is the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. Founding member, Dr. John Sanford. He's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented the gene gun. Inserts genes into the DNA. Worldwide famous for that. Brilliant scientist was an atheist for many years, but now he's a very strong Christian, very humble as well, just a super guy. And there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Just off the charts brilliant. Even secular geologists use that model to see how plates of the earth are moving. He lived in California most of his life. He's actually here at Liberty now, teaching, been there a couple of years, I think. So there's those two guys myself and a few other board members, and I always jokingly say, as smart as these guys are, if they were here this morning, they would be the first to admit out of all six board members, I'm the tallest. So 
anyway, I just humbled to be around them, and last November they voted they wanted me to be president, so now I'm president of the group, which means I've lost all respect for them. <laughs> so, but I learn a lot from them, and then I get to translate it into English for them. So, but many of you saw that background last night, so here's my real background. First Corinthians one twenty-seven. but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's how I see myself. If you guys knew me, you probably wouldn't even want me up here speaking. Uh, I don't think very highly of myself, but God told me a long time ago, this has nothing to do with me. He's, he's doing something. I get to go along for the ride. This one I relate to even more. Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's why I travel all the time. <laughs> because, watch this, because I get no respect. Now, <laughs> some of you know who that is. The rest of you is like, that doesn't even look like you. It's, like, it's not me. <laughs> anyway, ask your parents if you don't know who that is. So the talk, the background of this talk is interesting. Um, I was invited to go to a bioinformatics symposium at Cornell University in New York. Uh, it was by invitation only. You couldn't just show up, you had to be invited. And the scientist who was sponsoring it was Dr. John Sanford, the gene gun guy that I just told you about. I didn't know him well. I'd met him just for a few minutes one time at a conference. He contacted me and said, hey, how would you like to go to this bioinformatics symposium bioinformatics, biobiology and informatics, information. It's just information in living things. This was not a creation conference, but they were there to talk about evidence of information in living things, kind of yielding evidence for design. Not a creation conference. It wasn't about the Bible. It's just there's design. There's information in living things. Where did it come from? It was 27 lectures in three days. It was intense by some of the world's leading scientists. So I went and I took a lot of notes. I flew back to Wisconsin. I put this talk together, the talk you're going to hear, I put together and I contacted Dr. Sanford, who again, I didn't know very well yet. And I said, if I come back out to New York, could I spend a little time with you picking your brain, showing you my presentation, make sure it's accurate? He said, sure. And he said, don't stay in a hotel. He goes, you can stay at my house. I was like a kid in the candy store. So I showed him the presentation. We talked for hours and hours and he said, yes, it's accurate. And I love your PowerPoint, so that made me feel good. So then I flew home, I finished up the talk and put it together, and that's what you're going to see. It's coming out of some of the uh, bits and pieces out of that bioinformatics symposium. Now, how many of you have ever seen Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? You know, many of you have. It's kind of a dangerous show to have watched because you might find out that maybe you're not <laughs> smarter than a fifth grader. We're going to switch this up and ask, are you smarter than a PhD scientist? Now, most people say, well, no, I mean, those guys are brilliant, and, and they are. I honestly believe after you hear this presentation, you will be smarter than most Ph.D. scientists when it comes to the creation versus evolution controversy. Why is that? It has nothing to do with these scientists not being smart. They're brilliant. It has to do with the fact that most of them know nothing about this. They're smart. They're doing cool things. They're making food preservatives, rocket fuel, cool stuff, but they're not studying evolution. They don't even know about this. They just assume there are other scientists who have studied evolution and proven it. it's good enough for them. They have faith that that's been taken care of. No one questions them about the food preservatives, and they don't question people about evolution. And even those who are studying evolution, there's different areas, and they don't know about this. Some of them do know about it. They just don't like to think it through or try to come up with an answer. So, once you hear this, you'll be better positioned to discuss the creation-evolution controversy than most PhD scientists. And you'll see this is, I'm going to keep it simple, and it's very, very powerful. 
Uh, those of you who were here last night saw some of this. Since we are talking about evolution, we need to define it because you've got to make sure you're on the same page. Otherwise, you can have an argument with someone. You're talking about two totally different things. So when I'm talking about evolution, I'm not talking about something like this where they talk about the evolution of the phone, how it's changed over the years. It certainly has. It didn't change on its own. It was designed each time. But they'll sometimes call that evolution. And again, I mentioned I don't have a problem with that. It's just not what I'm referring to when I'm talking about evolution. It's not what they're teaching in the school system. I am also not referring to different breeds of dogs, about 350 breeds we have today. I'm not talking about a variety of cats we have on the planet. I'm also not referring to different beaks that Darwin got very excited about on finches. Those things are all facts of science. Nobody debates that. Those are just facts. But those things have nothing to do with evolution as they're teaching it in the school systems. This is basically what they're teaching. 3.8 billion years ago, they say, dead chemicals came together to form a living cell, and that living cell then turned itself into every other life form on this planet over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, actually a few billion years. This is what's taught in our school systems and state universities, and I refer to this as a story and again, it's not sarcastic, it's literal. They weren't there, they didn't see it happen, so they are telling a story of what they believe happened in the past when we didn't observe it and we can't repeat it and can't test it directly in a laboratory. I also refer to this as molecules to man evolution, the idea that non-living molecules came together just right to form a living cell, and then that cell turned into every other life form on this planet, including human beings. And I recommend you use that phrase, molecules to man evolution, because if you just say you don't believe in evolution, they're going to think you deny change because <laughs> they think the same, you know, anytime you see change, that's evolution. No, evolution requires change, but it's a very specific type of change that makes things better and better and better. We don't see that kind of change, and this talk is really going to hammer that home. So here's the general premise of this presentation. Certain things look pretty good from a certain angle or a certain distance, like this bright red BMW. Envision opening the hood and seeing a beautiful engine inside. Well, what if you opened the hood and you saw this? Well, hard to tell, but the engine's missing. A bunch of wires hanging there. So it looked pretty good upon, upon first inspection. Upon closer inspection, popping the hood, it doesn't look so good anymore. And that's what we're going to see with talking about evolution. Certain parts of it seem pretty believable, but when you pop the hood, you realize, wait a minute, this can't work. And when I say pop the hood, I mean looking what's going on inside, specifically in the DNA. And it doesn't take much imagination to envision evolution occurring, the plausibility. It seems very plausible, especially the way they teach it in the school systems. Now, if you look at these two creatures here, this snake and this lizard, these two creatures don't look completely different. There are a bunch of similarities there. And it doesn't take much imagination to envision bumps starting to form on that snake. And the bumps get a little bit bigger and bigger, small changes over millions of years, and they, they slowly turn into the legs, and they can crawl around and all that. It doesn't take much imagination to picture that happening, especially if you have supposedly millions and millions of years, right? So it's, that's believable, right? Well, when you pop the hood and see what would have to go on inside in the DNA to make the changes, that's when you realize, wait a minute, this can't happen at all, and we'll be talking about that in more detail it's a quote from Richard Dawkins. I mentioned him last night, one of the world's leading atheists. He said, you cannot be both sane and well-educated and disbelieve in evolution. The evidence is so strong that any sane, educated person has got to believe in evolution. 
very intimidating, saying, if you don't believe in evolution, you're just crazy. You're insane. Again, very dogmatic, intimidating, and that's what our kids are facing in the public school system in the state university. I actually like Richard Dawkins. I've not met him personally. I really, really want to. I was speaking over in Oxford in August, but I didn't run into him. Um, but one thing I appreciate him, about him is he's just being pretty straightforward. He's an atheist, and he's telling you what he actually believes, and I appreciate that. I don't think he'd probably like me, but I'd like to hang out with him and just learn more about him. And uh, He says some things that I actually agree with. So anyway, I appreciate some of his quotes. But Proverbs 18.17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. We've all been in those positions before where you hear something, and at first you're thinking, well, that sounds pretty powerful. How could you possibly argue with that? But then someone else says, well, wait a minute. Did you know about this or that or that? Like, oh, no, I didn't know those things. Okay, I guess that first thing, that doesn't sound so good anymore. So I facetiously say that Evolution 1-1 says the only one to plead his cause seems right because no one else is allowed to challenge him or present other views. And this is what we have in our public school system. They're only presenting one view. So of course it's going to seem plausible because they're not sharing anything else with you. Here's an interesting quote from Eugenie Scott. She's actually the former executive director at the National Center for Science Education. It's an organization that was basically constructed to fight creation. <laughs> There's all this powerful evidence for creation, and so this organization's out there to tell you, no, it's not true at all. So here's what the director said. In my opinion, using creation and evolution as topics for critical thinking exercises in primary and secondary schools is virtually guaranteed to confuse the students about evolution and may lead them to reject it. You can't present both views. Some students might not believe in evolution anymore. You can't have that. It's like, wait a minute, how do you teach critical thinking when you're only giving them one option? Someone might say, why don't you teach creation? Oh no, we've already looked into that. That's not scientific. The scientists have proven evolution is true. If they ever discover another option, they'll let you know. But for right now, there's only one game in town, and that's evolution. So students say, okay, that's scientific. The creation thing is a religious thing I can learn about at church. But it's not scientific, and it probably didn't even happen. So they're only presenting one view in our school system. So we don't have time to talk about the entire big picture, but the entire big picture would involve a number of things, like the origin of stuff, (laughs) matter and energy. We're living in a massive, massive universe. We're learning more and more about it. The James Webb uh, Space Telescope is discovering some cool things, cool pictures. They're also discovering things they shouldn't be seeing. (laughs) They think they're seeing much further back in time, closer to the Big Bang, or shortly after the Big Bang. They don't expect to see much other than maybe a few stars, certainly not mature galaxies, because that takes six to eight billion years to form. They are seeing massive, massive, fully mature galaxies only a half a billion years after the Big Bang, even less than that. It's like, they shouldn't be there. So are they going to get rid of their theory? Oh, no, they'll morph their theory. Oh, I guess the universe is even older. Who cares? All the better. Now it's going to be 20 billion years. Whatever they need, just throw some. It's like the, our debt, national debt. Just throw some more at it. It's big enough already. Adding more to it is not going to matter, right? It's just, anyway, that's a whole other talk. So how do you get stuff? Where'd stuff come from? Once you had stuff, how does it form stars, galaxies, and planets? The laws of physics mitigate against that. Once you have planets, how do you get dead chemicals to come together to form a living cell? Massive, massive problem. It's a whole other talk. And once you have a living cell, 
How does it turn itself into the millions of species we have today? And that's what we're going to look at specifically. How do you get a single-celled organism to turn all the way into a human being? Well, there's a lot of arranging and storytelling that goes on with discussing evolution. As an example, I've got four modes of transportation on the screen. We could arrange these things from simpler to more complex and discuss the evolution of the motorcycle. You see what happened? The small wheels at the back of the tricycle, they got together to form the larger wheel at the back of the bike and some chains. Then the chains and things morphed into an electric motor of the scooter, and the electric motor of the scooter eventually slowly changed into a gas combustion engine, and that's how we got motorcycles. Now, that's a silly story. No one would believe that. But all I did is I took existing things and just lined them up from simpler to more complex, and I told stories of how small changes over time happened. Same thing goes on with teaching a lot of evolution. As an example, we talk about the evolution of the horse from Eohippus all the way to the modern horse. I'm going to give you a quote from one of the leading evolutionists discussing this scenario here. This is Dr. Niles Eldridge. He is the former curator at the American Museum of Natural History. Keep that in mind. Here's his quote. I admit that an awful lot has gotten into the textbooks as though it were true. For instance, the most famous example still on exhibit in the American Museum, that's his museum, is the exhibit on horse evolution. That has been presented as literal truth in textbook after textbook. Now I think that that is lamentable, but by the time it filters down to the textbooks, we got a problem. What's he saying? He's saying it never happened, and it shouldn't be in the museum, or it shouldn't be in the textbooks. Well, if it shouldn't be in the textbooks because it never happened, why is it in your museum? Well, you know how much money it takes to change those displays? We, we can't afford that. So you keep stuff in the museum. That's not even true because it's a powerful visual to teach students how evolution occurs, even though that thing they're seeing never really happened. You take fossils and you line them up from simpler to more complex and you put plaques underneath telling the stories of how they change. And the millions of kids go through those museums and adults how can you argue with that? They've got bones. The bones are right in front of you, and you've got the plaques discussing what happened. That's a fact, right? No, that's storytelling, but the students don't know that, and they've got to memorize some of that, or they won't pass the test to pass the class to graduate to get on with life. Here's from the Book of Life from Stephen Jay Gould. He was one of the world's leading evolutionists and atheists. He had a diagram in there talking about how fish evolved into amphibians over millions and millions of years. Well, what was it like in the middle, the transitional thing, the missing link? I was at a state university giving this presentation once, and right when I got to this slide and I said, you know, this missing link, this one student stands up, he goes, it's Tick Taylor, they found it. I said, thank you for bringing that up, and I clicked, and Tick Taylor shows up. And I said, yeah, they found, they found this missing link, which they've already tossed out. There are a number of reasons why it doesn't qualify as a missing link, but all that happened was they found something they had never seen before. They dug up a fossil. Oh, we haven't seen this one before. You already have a lineup, right? It just, where does this one best fit in? Well, we could push these apart and put it in between there and just continue your story. But there are a lot of reasons why it really doesn't fit. But doing something like that isn't much different than doing something like this. Talking about how an Etch-a-Sketch evolved into an iPad. See, these two objects aren't completely different. They look a little similar, Right? What did it look like in the middle? Use your imagination, maybe kind of something like that. And 
there's a lot of imaginations in our science textbooks. We think maybe this happened, and you draw the pictures, and it's kind of in between these things, and you tell your story. And then you put millions of years on it. Well, anything can happen over millions of years, right? Small changes. And so we get things like this. But you know there's no way the simple internal workings of an Etch-a-Sketch could ever turn themselves into an iPad. No matter how much time you have, it's not going to happen when you look at what's going on in the inside. So how do we make that transition from a single-celled organism all the way to a human being? Well, when we reproduce as humans, our children don't look exactly like this. <laughs> um, changes do occur. Maybe our children have the same color eyes and hair and things like that, but there are changes. Changes occur. That's just a fact. In fact, there are two types of changes we see. We see built-in variation and random mutation. The built-in variation has to do with the information that's on the DNA. We've been studying that. And we have a pretty good idea of what does what. Kind of know what to expect. The random mutation, these are largely copying errors. When DNA copies itself, when people reproduce or animals reproduce, we take our existing DNA and we make a copy. But there's so much information there that sometimes, oops, we make copying errors. And so the random mutations are random. <laughs> There actually are some that are, seem to be pre-programmed design features. It's a whole other talk. Really, really cool. It's even more evidence for creation. But most of them seem to be just, oops, they, they didn't get copied right. There's a whole system to do the correction. There's like a three-tiered system to correct mistakes. And it's very, very complex. How, how did that evolve? Because that's actually embedded on the DNA. <laughs> but sometimes the mistake gets through all three layers and it gets passed on and that's a mutation. And those are random. It, we don't know what to expect because it's random. So let's take a look at each of these. Built-in variation. There are two dogs up here. They each have medium-length fur. And you'll see they each have these little DNA segments in there. Uh, they each have two copies of every gene that's part of the DNA. They each have two copies of those genes. Why would they have two copies? Because they got one from mom and one from dad. So you have two copies of each gene because you got one from mom, one from dad. So some of the genes make fur length. In these dogs, one of the genes makes long fur, the L, the other makes short fur, the S. When they reproduce, they will each take one of those genes and send it along to the puppy. They don't get to choose one goes or the other. If they both pass on a gene for short fur, guess what? The puppy will come out with short fur because it doesn't matter which gene is used or even if the genes combine, they're going to come out with short fur. If they both pass on a gene for long fur, the puppy comes out with long fur. If one passes on a gene for short, the other for long, the puppy can come out with long fur, it can come out with short fur, or if the genes combine, it could have medium length fur like the adults. That's built-in variation. <clears throat> and genes don't just do fur length, they do other things. They give us big dogs and small dogs, long ears, short ears, all the different features we see in dogs. They're pre-coded in the genes in the DNA. Well, if you look at these two sets of animals, set A and B, which set of animals looks more like each other? Pretty obvious, the animals on top there in set A, they look more like each other than the animals in set B. And why is that? It's because they're really the same general kind of animal. Ten times Genesis chapter 1 says that God created creatures to reproduce after their kind. Can they produce a variety? Yeah, great variety, but always within distinct limits after their kind. In fact, you can breed dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves. They can all breed together today. They're the same general kind of animal. And when you breed a dog and a wolf, you get a wolf dog. This is real science. This is what we would expect. It looks a little bit like the dog, 
a little bit like the wolf. But you can't breed a wolf and a dog and get an ostrich. Because <laughs> they don't have genetic information to make beaks and feathers. So can you get a variety? Yes. Are there limits? Yes, definitely limits to what's going on. You can also breed a zebra and a donkey, and you get a zonkey. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's real science. Why? Are these two totally different animals? No, basically the same animal. One just has a nice paint job. <laughs> you can also breed lions and tigers, and you get a liger. Why? Because they're both large cats. They can breed together. But what you can't do is breed a lion and a kangaroo to get a liangaroo. <laughs> that one's not going to happen. There are a bunch of other animals you're also not going to get breeds of. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when you have Photoshop and too much time on your hands. <laughs> Neither of which I have. But the reason we laugh is because you could tell that's not going to happen, and the scientists will agree, yeah, that cannot happen because of the DNA. So that was a built-in variation. Now let's take a look at this random variation. We are now magically transformed from a church into a state university. And this is a biology class, and I'm going to be the PhD biology professor, and I'm now going to teach you how evolution works. So we have an organism up here, and it's going to reproduce. And the way it reproduces, it makes a copy of itself. So it copies its DNA, and now it has children. The children look pretty much like the parents because it's a copy of the same DNA. Then the children reproduce, and they have grandchildren that look pretty much like the parents and the grandparents. It's a copy of the same DNA. Then the grandchildren reproduce, and oh, something's going on here. We have some significant mutations occurring here. Apparently, on the left, some of them are bad, but some of them are good. And then natural selection comes along like a superhero, and it wipes out those bad changes and just keeps the good ones. And now the new good ones reproduce and make more of those new good ones, and then the original ones reproduce, we have more of those too. Can you imagine the great variety of life we would have on this planet with a process like this happening for millions and millions and millions of years? Now, I guarantee you, the non-Christian students sitting in that classroom see this, and they say to themselves, that makes perfect sense. You can't argue with that. This is science. This is my PhD biology professor. It's as clear as day. That creation stuff, that's religion, that's an outdated religious book. You can't argue with that. But I guarantee you, probably most of the Christian students sitting there, they come to the same conclusion. How do you argue with that? This is, this is science stuff. This isn't just wishy-washy religious stuff. Well, we're going to take a closer look at these mutations to see can they really do what they're telling us they do. And many of you are old enough to remember Paul Harvey, famous radio announcer. He was famous for telling us the rest of the story. We're going to look at the rest of the story, and this is where you're going to see there's no way evolution can work and that the talk is going to get better and better and more visually interesting and it's just it's going to blow you away it's so cool i'm going to make three major points about these mutations first of all that they are random purposeless and undirected secondly they're occurring in the dna and thirdly they're almost entirely bad or detrimental look at each one of those first one these mutations are random purposeless and undirected this comes from nova online this is a secular publication this is what they said about these mutations. It's sometimes convenient when trying to make sense of evolution to think of changes within a species of having a purpose, as though Mother Nature has some intended goal that she sets out to achieve. 
The bacteria want to survive. Someone might reason when thinking about the declining effects of antibiotics, and so they evolve into resistant strains. Of course, there is no purpose in evolution, just random mutations within DNA, most of which are detrimental to the survivability of the organism. Those are the three points that I just made in the previous slide. I actually made the slide up and then I found this quote and was like, that's cool. They're saying the, the point that I'm making. They're random, they're occurring in the DNA, and they're basically bad. That's what the secular scientists are saying. But the popular literature will give you a different impression. This is Discovery News talking about dinosaurs. Presumably, the sauropods evolved large body size as a, as a strategy to deter predators. What are they saying here? Humorously, it's kind of like this. Apparently, at some point in the past, dinosaurs weren't as large as they eventually came to be. They're sitting around the campfire one night, and they're saying, hey, you guys, we need to come up with a strategy to deter our predators, or we're going to go extinct much sooner than we're supposed to. Do you have any ideas? And they say, no, our brains are too small. <laughs> And then one of them says, I got an idea. What if when they come after us, we get some machine guns out, we could shoot them? And the lead dinosaur says, no, we can't do that. They haven't been invented yet. So, okay, good point. Second dinosaur says, okay, what if we got onto our motorcycles? We could ride off into the sunset. The lead dinosaur says, well, those haven't been invented yet either. Okay, good point. Third dinosaur says, I got an idea. What if, just what if we evolve really large body sizes, we could scare them away? And the lead dinosaur says, now that is a great idea. Are we all in agreement? Yep, break. And they go off and they get big. There's not a scientist on the planet who believes that. Evolutionists don't believe that some creature needed something, so it tried to evolve it. They're just reproducing. They're just copying what they are. That's all they do. But the popular literature will give you the impression that something needed something, so it evolved it to survive. The fish. They're swimming around in the ocean for millions of years. Food starts to becoming scarce. They needed to evolve lungs to get up onto land to find new sources of food. So they evolved lungs. Guess what? The students write it down. Well, a fish got to do something or they're going to they're gonna die, right? Wait a minute. How do fish even know what lungs are? I know they swim around in schools, but how would they know what a lung is? <clears throat> even if they knew what a lung is, what are they going to do about it? All they have is genetic information to make fish parts. <laughs> and even if they start making mistakes in their DNA that starts, they think is leading towards a lung, kind of, what do they do when now they can't breathe underwater anymore, but they can't breathe on land yet because they're in transition for millions of years? They can't survive. It does not happen. It cannot happen. But you tell the surfacey part, they needed it, so they evolved it to survive. That's survival of the fittest, right? The students write it down because they're in a hurry. They don't have time to think about it. And they just, they don't really care anyway. Just, I got to pass the class to get out of here. So this is the kind of stuff that gets taught over and over and over. Second point, these mutations are occurring in the DNA. We talked about DNA briefly last night, a little bit more here. DNA is like a very, 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 very complex blueprint with lots and lots and lots and lots of information on it. The storage capacity of our DNA just blows us away. Let's say you had just a teaspoon, a teaspoon amount of your own DNA, and you want to back that up. You know, you back up your hard drive once in a while in case it crashes. So we want to back up just a teaspoon amount of your DNA, and we're going to use a 64-gig thumb drive. That's a lot. 64 gigs, that's a lot of information. In fact, that's almost 10 million pages of information you could fit on this tiny 64-gig thumb drive. So how much of that thumb drive would we need to back up just a teaspoon amount of your DNA? 
That's a good question. Maybe you'd need more than one drive. How about a thousand of them? That would be a lot, but that's not enough. <laughs> How about a million? <clears throat> that's crazy. That's not quite enough. Someone would have to give you a million of these thumb drives every day for 139 years. Then you'd have enough storage space to back up just a teaspoon amount of information that you can fit in, in DNA teaspoon. It's just crazy. Again, we teach, oh, it's just an accident, and it happened over millions of years. To me, that just screams design, but we'll be getting to things that are much more interesting than that. And again, the DNA is like that coiled-up ladder. Some of you remember those sets of books. We called them encyclopedias. <laughs> uh, there's not really used much anymore with the Internet and everything, but DNA is like a set of encyclopedias. And the rungs on the DNA, it's what we call nucleotides, a single rung is kind of like a single letter, like one letter out of the whole set of encyclopedias. And when you string a bunch of letters together, a bunch of those rungs, the nucleotides, that's how you make words. Put a bunch of the rungs together, and you can build words. When you put uh, thousands or tens of thousands of these rungs together, that's how you make a gene. You've all heard of the genes in your DNA. A gene is like a single chapter in that whole set of encyclopedias. One chapter, that's like a gene in your DNA. Then when you have thousands of genes or thousands of chapters, that's how you build a chromosome, which is like a single volume, one book out of that set of encyclopedias. That would be like what you have in your DNA we call a chromosome. And then when you're looking at the entire set of encyclopedias, that's what we call the genome. For people, we call it the human genome. So it's a little bit of biology 101. Many of you knew that already. But the last one, this is where it gets most interesting, and if you've been bored out of your skull so far, business starts to pick up here, it gets, it gets fun. These, these mutations are basically almost all bad, and evolutionists admit that. They say, yeah, most of them are bad, but there are some good ones, whatever, and we'll, we'll see about that. But basically, here's how the story of evolution works. Let's say you had a single-cell bacteria. The amount of information in a single-cell bacteria is equivalent to what you would find in like a biochemistry textbook. Now, you pick up a typical biochemistry textbook, there's a lot of information in it. That's about how much information we have in a single-cell organism. There's no such thing as a simple cell. Some are simpler than others, but none of them are simple. This single cell has the amount of information you would find in a biochemistry textbook. But remember, we've got to turn that cell all the way into a human being. Human beings have a lot more information in them than a single cell. So we've got to make some changes here. Now here's this uh, biological information book. This book was produced from the Bioinformatics Symposium at Cornell. We're going to open it up, look at a page. You don't have to worry about reading everything. I'm going to blow that up on the left side. So here's some text from that book. We can't just copy that text. If we just copy this book over and over and over, millions of years from now, we'll just have a lot more of those textbooks. That's all it'll be. Same thing, just a lot of them. So if you want to change that book, that cell, into something else, you can't just copy it. You've got to make changes to make it something different. Well, what are these changes? It's the mutations, these accidental copying errors. It's the only game in town for evolution. They admit the only thing that really gives you the raw information for evolution to work with is mutations, making mistakes when you're copying something. So let's take a look at what mutations look like. So here in the text, we have a duplication mutation. We take the, the last L in the word level. We put an extra one in there. We duplicate it. It doesn't spell level anymore. Now, if you were reading a book with that in there, you'd say, oh, it's just a typo. It's, it's the word level. It's not how our DNA works. 
If our DNA was reading that, say, I've never seen this before, destroyed it. It would move on. That's a duplication mutation. Then we have a deletion mutation. You take the M out of model. It doesn't spell model anymore. Then we have a substitution mutation. You take the P out of probability, put a Z in there instead. It doesn't spell probability. It's called point mutations. This is what happens in our DNA when copies are made. These mistakes happen. Here's what's interesting. You could ask a five-year-old child, what's your favorite book? And then they tell you some book. And you say, if we took your book, and we just closed our eyes, opened it up, and stuck our finger in there, and whatever letter we touch, we, we put an extra one of those letters right there. And then we close our eyes again, stick our finger in somewhere else, and whatever letter we touch, we just actually delete it. We get rid of it. And then we do it again, and whatever letter we touch, we take that one out and put a different letter in, maybe even a number. If we kept doing that to your book, would your book get better and better? A five-year-old will say, no, it'll get worse and worse. Pretty soon I won't even be able to read it. A five-year-old understands that. You have to be highly educated to not get this. <clears throat> and that's what happens. These secular scientists, they seriously, they're brilliant. I think most of them are smarter than I will ever be. It's not about smartness. <laughs> it's not about just having facts in your head. It's about applying that. It's wisdom, as I mentioned yesterday. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've got all these smart scientists out there, but they're not properly applying the knowledge in their head because they lack wisdom, which only comes from God. So super smart scientists either, A, don't even know about this, which most of them don't, and the ones who do, they're spiritually blinded. They don't really like to think about it. They just trust, well, there must be some way that it still works. But we're going to see why the challenge for evolution gets worse than anything I've presented so far, this is where we get into the cutting-edge stuff that'll make your head spin in a good way, and it's fun, and it's things that you can take and share with other people very, very simply, very, very powerfully, without having to be a biologist or anything. It's very visual, very straightforward, so I took this stuff from the bioinformatics stuff, and now you're going to see it in English. It's fun. This is just cool. One of the biggest challenges for evolution has to do with how the information is actually written on our DNA. That's what causes the problem. So let's say you're looking at a segment of your DNA and you wrote it out and it's spelled out, was it a rat I saw? Kind of a strange sentence. Uh, in English, we read from left to right. You may have noticed already, you can read that backwards. <laughs> was it a rat I saw? Forwards and backwards. Was it a rat I saw? It's called a palindrome. Maybe not very meaningful, but it's kind of fun. You can read it forwards and backwards. This is what we've discovered about much of our DNA. Much of it can not only be read forwards, but it can also be read backwards. That's very complex. But the challenge for evolution to produce a system you can read forwards and backwards gets worse than that because that was the same message either way. It doesn't matter which way you read it. You just get one message. That's not what we really see in our DNA. Take a look at this example, the word desserts. You flip that around, it spells stressed, which is what I get when I don't get dessert. <laughs> so let's say we're reading this in our DNA, and we, we need to again improve it. You can't just copy it. We need to make a change to it to hopefully someday improve it and make it better. So let's introduce one of our wonderful random mutations. We'll just randomly delete the T. Guess what? It doesn't spell desserts anymore, but it also doesn't spell stressed. One change messed up two messages because it goes forwards and backwards. But we don't see little words in our DNA that you can read forwards and backwards. We see up to entire 
chapters of complex instructions you can read forwards and backwards. Let me help you with that so you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Let's say you all get a job working for a cell phone company, and it is your training to write the instruction manual to give to the manufacturing plant so they can make the phones. That's what you do. Your boss comes to you one day and says, I have a project for you. I need you to write the chapter in the manual that explains how the phone is going to download apps from the web. You say, yeah, I can do that. He says, thanks. He's walking away, and then he turns around, and for those of you who are a little bit older, like Columbo, just wait, just, just one more thing. <clears throat> he goes, when you write that chapter, you have to write it in such a way that if we read your chapter backwards, it's going to explain how the phone's going to play music files. And you're looking at your boss and thinking, yeah, that's a good one, that's funny. And your boss says, no, I'm serious. We only have so much room in the manual. Your chapter of instructions has to make sense being read forwards and backwards. That is humanly impossible. It cannot be done. You can't even program a computer to do that. I did programming for 12 years. It cannot be done. But that's what we're seeing in our DNA. We read it one direction. It is a set of very complex instructions that code to make certain proteins that carry out a certain function in your body. Now you read it backwards, it's a completely different set of instructions making completely different proteins carrying out a completely different function in your body. That is incredible. Two major points. Number one, particles interacting over time, banging together, could never, ever create a complex information system that you could read forwards and backwards and even if it did, making random changes to that complex system is not going to improve it over time. It's going to destroy it faster and faster. So every time you're making a change, you're messing up you know, more than one message. But guess what? The challenge for evolution gets even worse than that. We have something called overlapping <clears throat> information. Take a look at this strange phrase here. I like chocolate later that evening. Why is it strange? Because it's two phrases. I like chocolate, which is true, and later that evening. They overlap in the middle. They share those letters, L-A-T-E, overlapping phrases. This is what we've discovered about our DNA. We have overlapping instructions in our DNA. So let's introduce <clears throat> one of the wonderful mutations here. We delete the E and put a Z in there instead, a substitution mutation. It doesn't spell I like chocolate, and it doesn't spell later that evening. One change messed up two messages because they overlap. We don't see a few letters that overlap in our DNA. We see up to entire chapters of instructions that overlap each other, and they both make sense. But guess what? The challenge for evolution gets worse than that. Same phrase up here again. We're going to talk about spliced information. I like chocolate later that evening. Let's underline a few segments and splice them out. We'll bring them down below, and it spells I like her hat. That is a spliced message. You took the mean message, took chunks out, put them together, and you got an additional piece of information there. This is what we're discovering in our DNA. Let's introduce one of our random mutations to make it even better. We delete the H. It doesn't spell I like chocolate, but now it also doesn't spell I like her hat. One change messed up two messages because we have spliced messages. 
But in our DNA, we don't have little, you know, a few letters here and there that get spliced out. We have up to long sentences and short paragraphs that can be spliced out, put together, and you have additional instructions. It's kind of like taking the biochemistry textbook. You read it cover to cover. You learned a lot of information. Now go back and just kind of randomly splice out long sentences and short paragraphs from wherever, put them together. Oh, you got another chapter of instructions. It's impossible. We could never write a book like that, but that's what we're seeing in our DNA. But the challenge for evolution gets worse than that. We have embedded messages. Take a look at this. Can you show Mike Owen checks from Oliver's latest facts and set it on the desk? Let's circle every ninth letter up here. And then we'll bring those letters below. And it spells chocolate. There's a theme going on here. It's my talk. I can do that. But let's introduce one of our random mutations here. We'll just randomly delete the H. It messed up the main sentence. So the main sentence got messed up. But what's going to happen now? You delete one letter, all the other letters after that will shift over one position. So now when you circle the ninth letters, it would be those letters. You bring those below, and it's meaningless because of the random mutation. So you messed up the main sentence, and you messed up the embedded messages. We have embedded messages in our DNA It is so complex, but guess what? The challenge for evolution gets worse than that. We have encrypted messages in our DNA. I actually had three interviews with the CIA to work on their cryptographic analysis division. Really creepy story for some other times. Just kind of bizarre. I'm glad I don't work there. As far as you know, I don't work there. (laughs) I worked with my wife. My wife for a long time thought I was working for the CIA. I said, no, seriously, I don't. (laughs) Now she actually believes me. I, I don't, as far as you know. So... But encrypted messages. So let's look at this phrase across the screen there. Seems very random and meaningless. But what if there was an encryption key? So everywhere there's an H up there, it's really an A. Everywhere there's a B, it's a C. For example, everywhere there's a Y, it's a T. So those two Ys, those are really Ts. Well, let's substitute all those letters according to this key, and it spells, this is an encrypted message. (laughs) That's one way of doing data encryption. It can get really complex. We actually have data encryption in our DNA. So let's take a second to think through what would be required by nature, not God. There's no God. There's no creator, no designer. There's just particles. There was a big bang, created helium and hydrogen, a little bit of lithium, and then eventually got heavier elements, and here we are today. That's what we teach. They take our tax dollars, and they're teaching our kids that. You know, there's no God. Everything happened. Particles banging together over time. Okay, what do particles banging together have to do to create an encrypted message system? Let's think it through. First of all, these particles would have to develop a language system using symbols. So when you have three sticks like that, you put them together this way, we're going to call that an A. And those other shapes there, you put them together this way, that's going to be a B. They have to create an entire alphabet by particles just banging together over time. Secondly, you have to create and define words when you put those Four letters together, it's going to represent that object. You have to create an entire dictionary of words and definitions by particles banging together over time. Thirdly, you have to write meaningful sentences and paragraphs, which requires rules of grammar. How do particles banging together create rules of grammar? Next, you have to establish the encryption system with that key that I talked about. Then you have to create the system that does the coding and the decoding. And lastly, you have to develop the ability to read and carry out the instructions or the whole thing is useless. 
There is not a scientist on the planet who can even begin to explain how particles banging together did any of that. Yet it's there. To me, that just screams the design. They don't want to see it. Again, many of them don't know about it, but the other ones, they just they don't want to think. They just imagine, well, somehow nature is very powerful, and these particles, you give them enough time, anything can happen. No, only things that are possible will happen. In fact, the more time you give it, the worse it's going to get. It's going to run downhill. But one more time, I'm skipping a few details. You can thank me for that later. One more time, the challenge gets worse than that. We have 3D information in our DNA. This is a little bit harder to depict, but I'll do the best I can with PowerPoint. When our DNA makes proteins, they're not these little short segments of ladders. They're very, very, very complex, three-dimensional folded structures. If they don't get folded just right, they're useless, and the components get disassembled and then re reused later. So they're very complex, three-dimensional uh, shapes. So I've got seven random words here on the screen. We're going to fold these words. And when I say fold, just for PowerPoint, we're going to stack them on top of each other. When you stack those words that way, you can see in a three-dimensional fashion, in a sense going up and down, an additional piece of information. Now you see the word success when you fold them that way. Well, obviously, if we introduce a random mutation, change letters, delete them, all that, that's going to mess that up. But also, if you don't fold it right, you lose that piece of information. And this is what we have with our DNA. We have all those other levels of information I already told you. Then you also have something else. When you have these strands of DNA, you got rungs over here and rungs over here and all that. When you fold it, now this side is on top of that side. And going up and down, you can get additional information. It is such a complex system. There's no way particles did that. This screams evidence of design. If that is not evidence of design, please give me an example of something that would be. I've asked many skeptics that. In fact, I mentioned last night, I have yet to have one skeptic address this specific presentation. The things I presented, how do you explain that by particles banging together? They'll talk about, well, there's evil in the world today. Yeah, there is. Let's talk about that. But can you first address the evidence I gave you? There is no scientific evidence for creation. Okay, what, what about what I just presented? Well, there's no scientific evidence. <laughs> I'm talking about mutations and DNA and nucleotides and all that. Again, if that doesn't count... Tell me what you're looking for. What would you have to see to qualify as evidence of design? And I have yet to have one skeptic give me an example. If I saw this, that would be evidence of design. They don't typically don't want to define it because then <clears throat> they've got some criteria there that we can use their own criteria. Even, even Darwin said, if we ever discover something that could not be explained by the slow succession of small steps that added up together, his theory is just done. If it can't be explained by slow changes over time, well, this and many, 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 many other things cannot be explained by slow, gradual changes over time. So by using Darwin's own words, his theory is disqualified. So that's why today, typically, a skeptic isn't going to get too specific because that's throwing criteria out there. And many of them haven't really thought it through. Well, what are you expecting to see? You say there's no evidence of design. Like I, To me, I'm seeing it all over. Again, that's why I think this is largely a spiritual issue. So wrapping this talk up, certain things look pretty good from a certain distance or a certain angle, like the bright red BMW. We envisioned opening the hood to see the engine there, but we found out we opened the hood on evolution. The engine's missing. There's nothing to drive it. Here's a quote from a geneticist. He said, genetics has no proofs for evolution. 
It has trouble explaining it. The closer one looks at the evidence for evolution, the less one finds of substance. In fact, the theory keeps on postulating evidence and failing to find it, moves on to other postulates, fossil missing links, natural selection of improved forms, positive mutations, etc. This is not science. And one other quote you probably heard before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the Bible's been telling us all along. And the more we look at science, the more it backs it up. That maybe, just maybe, God knew what he's talking about. <laughs> and you can trust absolutely everything in here. And the more, again, we look at the more excited I get. Personally, I don't actually need all the science. I trust God's word, and there are many, many reasons why I believe it apart from that. But it's nice to know I don't have to say, well, forget the science stuff. Just, just believe it in your heart. I don't have to say that. I say, bring the science on. Because the more we truly understand it, the more it backs up what God's been saying all along, right from the beginning. So that's evolution probable or problematic, very visual, easy to understand. How do particles create complex information systems? You can read forwards and backwards and overlapping and embedded and encrypted and 3D and on and on. It's like, help me understand. If there's no God, and I understand you as a skeptic, that's your view, that's fine then how did this occur? I mean, I'm just wondering, like, how do you account for all that? And how did particles banging together over time become aware of themselves? Seriously. We're all aware we're right here. We're, we're giving you know, this talk and all that. How did particles banging together become aware of themselves? And how did certain particles come together in such a way that they think the Green Bay Packers are the best football team? <laughs> I might be wrong about that, but I, I like the Packers. Why do my particles care about the Packers? Why do other particles come together and actually play football? Tell me that transition. How did they become aware of themselves? There's, there's a lot of other challenges too, but to me, a skeptical and atheistic worldview doesn't line up with reality. The more I see of reality, the more it lines up with what God told us about the reality he created.